Psalm 19, it's on page um, 541 in the Black Pew Bibles. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of God. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Vera. Appreciate that. So let's take a look today at Psalm 19. Uh, you know, David wrote this psalm. Uh, it says there, for the director of music, a psalm of David, right in that prescript that is right before the actual psalm itself. Um, and as you know, David was, he was a shepherd. So he spent a lot of time out in the fields, probably a lot of time alone, looking, contemplating, thinking about apparently some of the bigger issues of life and having opportunity to gaze up at the stars and think, you know, why is all this here? And who made this? And if there's somebody who made this, does that maker have any interaction at all with his creation um, or with me individually and and you could put it this way we've already given the title there to um, is God really speaking to us and David says here clearly that he is in fact speaking and the only question that really remains is are we listening are we students of the words that God is speaking to us uh, through his creation this psalm says through his word and then finally, even just internally for what's happening on the inside of us as well. We've been looking as we go through the Bible just recently at the, the story of David's life. You know, he's gotten into uh, those historical narratives. And that's what we've been looking at mostly is stories, historical narratives. We believe this really happened in history. They're telling the stories of different people's lives and drawing from that some of the truths that God wants us to learn from it. And now we're looking at something in poetry. So this is, uh, this is the Post Malone of the uh, first centuries, you know, BCs going on here too. That's a teenage reference for those of you who have no clue what I'm talking about. Um, this is, you know, the playlist of the, the Israelites, um, the top hits. And this is uh, one, of the, one of the greatest expressions here. Psalm 19 says so much about God and his interaction with us as well. So let's, let's take a look at it and just kind of work through these verses together. I mean, first thing that we see is that God does speak 
And he speaks about his existence through the creation that he's made, through his creation in the first six verses. And they were already read, but there they are just to remind you again. Uh, in verses 1 through 2, then we see that through the design of the universe, God is saying something. He is speaking through creation itself. From the first two verses, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night and night, night after night, they display knowledge. So the heavens, as you look up and you consider the stars and how grand everything is, they're preaching a message. They're declaring a sermon and they're saying God is glorious. He is great. There is a God. And he is spectacular. We could spend some time talking about the vastness of the universe and how the expanses are continuing to, to fling forward. And it's, it's almost mind-numbing as you get out a tiny little telescope and start to look into the stars. And you can see a lot, but it's only a fraction of what there is. And scientists these days listen for signs of other life. And they have these amazing capacities to hear things and trying to, it's just a tiny little grasp of the dimensions of the universe. And that is meant, according to this verse here too, to shout out that there is a God and that he is worthy of praise. He's glorious. And the skies themselves are proclaiming that. Is there a God? Lift up your heaven, your eyes to the heavens and take a look and see. Now, there are other explanations for that as well. Uh, it could be, for example, that this all came from a whole series of random events, chance over millions and millions of years that brings order out of chaos or, or nothingness. And uh, that would be what people who ascribe to the Big Bang or evolution would say, that you give enough time, enough random things to exist over hundreds of millions and trillions perhaps of years and then you get order out of that and that that is a, something that many many people believe and that takes a certain measure of faith to believe that um, takes a good deal of faith people who are people of this book people of faith would say that you know, you're going to have to take somewhere along the line a leap of faith to believe that. Consider the other evidence for the possibility of the existence of God. A grand designer who has put everything together, who has a purpose, a telos in the Greek. You know, this idea that God has put something in design and he's put in perfect balance, not only the grand nature of things, but the tiny minuscule Things that have to happen. I mean, how many things can go wrong with our bodies? I know a lot of us don't want to go to the doctor to find out what's happening on the inside. I get that, the, the annual checkup or something. But the processes, the minuscule processes necessary for us just to be here today, all the opportunities for things to go wrong, not just motorcycle incidents, but even what's happening on the inside of our bodies are just astronomical. You could go crazy thinking about all that. And yet here you are. Here's, here's a new life that we celebrate. The unbelievable process. And all these things, according to David, suggest that there is a God. And that he is communicating to us, even through nature itself, through the systems, the structures, the order, the way that things are. There's a beautiful art all around us that's pointing to an artist. 
And in fact, in verses 5 through 6, if you look down there, he's talking about the heavens and, and our sun being pitched up in there like a tent. And he gives images of it like a bridegroom. You know, you're waiting for that, that, per, that bridegroom to, to enter at the beginning of a, a wedding ceremony. And he comes in and all the anticipation. And he's got on special clothing. And you know, it's a unique event. That's like the sun. Or here's a, another image, a, a victorious uh, one that's gone forward, a champion rejoicing to run his course. That's what the sun is like. And in verse 6, we see that it rises at one end and it makes the circuit to the other. And it kind of cu- goes over and over again. And this is the predictability of the universe that we live in. You know, back in the 1800s when the Enlightenment came and it basically said, man is the measure of all things. We can reduce everything into scientific measurements. You know, and we can hit that and explain it. And there is nothing spiritual, something that we can't explain. So if we don't understand something, we just don't have enough evidence yet. The only reason that you can have, I would argue, the scientific method is because there is a measure of predictability to the entire universe, which is what God has baked into it. So many of the scientists of the past operated with that notion. I have a predictable universe that I can study and explore. And there are some things I just won't know. But the existence of God tells me that I can explore this and that I ought to because he's given it to us as a good gift to express his glory. So these minute things that we look at, these atoms and quarks and everything, are saying something about a God who cares about detail. As much as the massive expanse of the universe going where no man has gone before says something as well about the vastness of a God who is so so massive and so incomprehensible that to explain how huge he is, he holds all the universe in the palm of his hands. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. But can everybody understand this? Are there people who don't have access to that? No. In verses 3 through 4, he says, Everyone... Every person, every one person even, (laughs) wow, a new phrase, can hear this voice. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard, verse 3. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their their words to the ends of the world. God has given us nature, his creation, that screams out, there is a God, and he is glorious. Don't need Google Translate. You need to look out and see. Or at least it ought to arouse the question, some sort of suspicion. Is there somebody who's designed all of this? And if you're someone who comes to the conclusion that yes, in fact, there is, then we can look at the creation a little bit differently. You know, Van Van Til, who was an apologist, uh, defender of the faith, uh, he took what's called a presuppositional approach, which simply means that you, you kind of look at the world through a certain lens and you'll come to a conclusion sort of based on it. So somebody who rejects the notion of God, for example, is not going to pick up an apple and take a bite from it and say, isn't God good? Because they've dismissed the notion of God, so they'll look at the scientific processes and say this is something that's been given us just to eat because all we are is atoms and molecules put together. But for somebody who says there's a God and, and creation displays his glory, you can take that apple and bite it and you can say glory be to God for the crispness of this apple, for the delight of taking it in, for the, for the way that he's given us these different flavors. 
for the fact that I didn't bite a worm in this bite is evidence of the fall. You just look at things differently because you believe that God has given this to us. Consider the ant, Proverbs 6. You know, talking to somebody who's, who's a sluggard, who's lazy. You look at the ant and you, you make a conclusion about what God is saying through the universe, through a tiny ant. Consider the ant. Think about it. That, that ant works really, really hard. I mean, it's carrying something way beyond its weight. What about you? you know, lazy sluggard. Can't even get out of bed. I mean, what's, there's an ant, and I can sit there and say, God is speaking through this ant about who I am, about who he is, and about what life is all about. Hosea 6, come to us like the spring rains. Surely God will come like the spring rains. Anybody see some spring rains around here? I mean, the, the rains are coming, the winter, spring rains are coming like God comes. As, as you hear that, that rain pouring down, God comes to us like that. Elijah, you know, God, are you there? Kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm not going to speak to you. It was earthquake. Nah, I'm not in the earthquake. Fire. You know, all this big stuff. And he comes like a still small voice, just a whisper. God is speaking through his creation. And, and if you are attentive to it, if you're listening, there's something to be learned. And it is, in many ways, a matter of perspective. And David is saying, they're declaring God, they're preaching God. Are you hearing the message? Can I get an amen, David is saying, when you look up at the skies? Are you able to say hallelujah? Surely there is a God, and surely he's speaking to me. Even the hymn writers of the past, so the deep, deep love of Jesus, what's it like? It's like an ocean. Vast, unmeasured, rolling over me. The love of God. I mean, this, this creation then is God's gift to us. And he's speaking to us through the creation. But is it enough? Well, I don't know. It's certainly clear. Paul says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. That's in the book of Romans have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all men are without excuse. Paul would say, we all have a sense that there's a God just by looking at the creation, but we suppress that truth. We don't want to know it. And there's a whole list of reasons why. If you read the book of Romans, because we want to be God effectively. And what's so ironic about that is how much control do you have over nature? I mean, you look around and you see this creation says there's a God. Like, I'd prefer to be that God. And our weathermen can't get the weather right two hours from now. Hundreds of years after the scientific revolution. Because he's God and he does as he wills. And you are not. So you can either say, I'm going to create my own reality or submit to his. And it's good. It's a good reality. But is it enough? I mean, all men are without excuse about the fact that there's a God. That's what Paul has argued here. And yet, can we tell by looking at a tree that God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son just by looking at that tree? Like, there must be a Savior who was sent. I'll bet his name is Jesus. 
I'll bet he became man and walked among us and pitched his tent and showed us his glory. Isn't it interesting that he pitched a tent just like the sun does and he shows his glory. This is John chapter 1. Is it enough? No. I mean, what compels us? We may know there's a God, but that's general revelation. Specifically, he needs to disclose himself. He does it in the final word, the person of Jesus, which you and I have access to. And this is the reason why Paul, right in the middle of Romans 9 through 11, which is incredibly complex, there's things like predestination and do we have a choice and that kind of thing. And as, as surely as he can say, I'll save whom I want to save, he also says, you have an obligation to go and declare to the ends of the earth. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You are the living letters of God. And you have... You're his mouthpiece. Yes, the heavens declare something too, but the specifics, that's something that I've declared in the person of my son. And you are God's fellow workers going to declare that. You're his mouthpiece. This is the all-compelling motive for people who've left everything they know and gone somewhere else or stayed right where they are and recognized this is their, not just duty, but joy. To declare that there's a God who's glorious and that he has come in the person of Christ. And even David hints at this because he says, as glorious as the creation is, God's given us not just creation, but also his word. In the next verses, God speaks about his character, who he is, and his expectations. How do we live? In verses 7 through 11, in what we see as the law of God. And if you look at these next verses, you'll see it talks a lot about the law. The law of God would have been more specifically, not just the Ten Commandments, but the five books of Moses that were handed down by oral tradition. And then as God continued to build a written testimony about who he was, you know, we call it the canon of Scripture, the, the words that are authoritative that he's written down for us to live by, and that was collected over time, not just in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but all the things that we've been reading all the way up to the book of Revelation. And of course, we live in this time when we can look at it and say, this is how God works. So that would be the collective idea that God has given us a final document saying, this is it. This is who I am and how you're supposed to live. And back then, David then would be looking at it more narrowly as the law. What is the law like? Well, he gives a list here in verses 7 through 11. It's perfect. It's, it's perfect. It's flawless. It's, it's trustworthy. You can believe it. It's right, and it's sure, and it's righteous, and it's precious. He says all that in verses 7 through 11. So there's all these great things that he says. You can believe this, and there's reasons why we can believe it, and there's great benefits. So here's what the law is like. It's good. It's precious, and there's things that come as a result of it, and he gives a list of those things. Now, this is like one of those modern, you know, those modern commercials. If anybody actually watches TV or watches commercials anymore, I don't know. But you've probably seen some with, with, with drugs, right? I know some of you are in the uh, pharmaceutical industry uh, or maybe doctors. And you say, here's a drug that you can take. And it's going to give you these benefits. But before we tell you about the benefits, here's all the things that are, could go wrong. And it's laughable. It'd be interesting just to watch one of those commercials now. You know, dry eyes and cramping and 
You know, I mean, I don't know. It's like a list of 100 things for one benefit that you get. These, all these things could go wrong. Death. But, you know, you'll be able to see 10 feet farther. And this is what's amazing about God's word if you're willing to receive it. It's all these good things and the list of benefits. There's nothing bad about it. These are all great things. Look, look at what this verse, these verses say. If you've already looked at those. What does it say about the law of God? It revives the soul. That's verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. If you feel dead inside, God's word can give you life. Reviving the soul, giving energy and strength to that which is listless. That's a benefit of God's law. What else does God's law do? It makes wise the simple. I mean, and that kind of makes sense, right? If this, in fact, is God's word for the one who's made all of us and who understands everything from all time, always has been, always will be, says, hey, look, I got some things to share with you. Here's what it looks like to live life. Here you go. Here's the collective wisdom, not just of the saints, but of the God who made everything. Feel simple? I got some wisdom for you. It'll make you wise. I don't care how wise. The, the greatest scholar of this world in 1 Corinthians is foolish compared to God. You want some wisdom, which is living life well? Here it is. I mean, that's what Psalm, Psalm 1's all about, too. Blessed is he who takes this in. You're going to flourish. Other people are withering around you. Here it is. Here's how you flourish. Even when it seems others are faltering, you want to be wise? Well, that's what God's word does. The law makes wise the simple. It gives joy to the heart. Furthermore, verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. Joy, the full assurance that God is at work no matter what. Who doesn't need that? This is what God reminds us of as we read his word. I got this. I'm in this. It seems hopeless. It's not. You feel like you have no joy. I understand. Take a look at what I've, what I've done and what I'm doing. And, and not only look back, but look ahead to what is coming and find strength in your moment of weakness. And because of that, it's more precious than gold. I mean, I've been hold, hearing about price of gold as long as, you know, I've been aware enough to realize money is nice to have because it can get me stuff. And they say, well, get gold, you know, gold, the market for gold, hide it or something like that. The gold standard in economics. If you really thought that it, it's more, presh, more precious than gold, you serious? If I told you guys you could make 100 bucks in the next hour by doing, I don't know, finding one of the lost Easter eggs out there, you'd probably, we'd all be out there right now. And here it is available to us. I mean, this is what David is saying. That it's more precious than gold. And if money doesn't do it for you, how about food? You like food. You're driven. You're, you know, your, your, your reflex is money, food. It's, more, it's sweeter than honey, God's word is. I mean, it's to be valued in that sort of way. I know there's barriers to believing this, and we fight real things, the world that says, nah, money's much better than this stuff. You know? Cain's chicken tenders and God's word? Come on. No competition. That's the, the flesh and the devil. We've got real enemies, but this is what God's saying. I've designed you, and this is good for you. And furthermore, it gives you protection from danger. By them is your servant warned. Don't do this. I'm telling you. Don't go down this road. 
warning signs, warning signs, and of course, we may choose to ignore them, but if you want to be warned, you know, you, you dive into the water and there's a sign that says there's a rock here you can't see. Don't dive into the water. Ah, I won't hit it. Well, I mean, you can try and see what it's like. And there's consequences to those things, but God's word saying, don't go down this road. Don't listen to those voices. Don't. You can ignore it to your peril, or you can say, I value this because I see. Even though other things are pulling me this way, no. And it brings great reward, and how could it not? By them is your servant ward. In keeping them, there's great reward. You keep these things. Those are all the benefits. There's nothing, there's no downside to this now. If that were a product that somebody was selling out in the marketing world, this would be something easy to sell. But we, we, know, we know that we battle against that. Maybe we don't believe it's true. We don't want to kick those tires to see if they're really running right. But I'll tell you, it's true. I mean, and it's not true just because God says it. You live this life out. This is back to presuppositionalism in a sense. Try it out. You know, get, get into it. Live by this and you'll, you'll see. And that's sort of a subjective, experiential thing. Come on in, the waters, and, and see if, if what God is saying is true. And, uh, and some of you will know this verse very well uh, about this thing we call special revelation. I mean, Paul writes later, writing to Timothy, a young pastor that says all scriptures God breathed. God has breathed into it, just like he breathed into existence. This world, he's done that with these words that we believe are his. And so because of that, they're useful for instructing us and for writing us if we're on the wrong way, correcting, training, you know, becoming more of what God wants us to be so that we can be thoroughly equipped for the works that you're supposed to be doing. This is why I think it's good for us to read through the entire Bible in a year. This is God's way of, of revealing himself to us and seeing those patterns that show up again and again, reminding us of who he is and who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. So pick on up where we are and join us in that process. And finally we see in these last verses that God speaks about our relationship to him. And he does this through our spirits. And that's how I'm phrasing verses 12 through 14, which read, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the assumption here is that Something is out of sorts and needs correction. I, I may not even be aware of it, that I'm at odds in some way with the one who's made me and then revealed how I'm supposed to live. But David senses that here. There's something that needs correction. There's a guilt. There's a weight, a heaviness internally in my spirit that says something is wrong. And I know it can be right. How do I get there? David is saying that comes from God and that it touches on the things that we say, the way we talk, but also our motivations internal. This is a journey inward. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. His desire is to please this one who's created all things. 
And if you've rejected that, you still, I think, have, I would argue, this sense of, of, of conscience that, that draws us toward right. Where do we get this idea of right and wrong? Where do we feel not right when something has gone wrong and there's a rift in a relationship? God has made us in his image and you're reflecting that reality as a moral creature who has some sense of right and wrong. If you're uh, walking with God, it seems David here, he has a very complex life and there's times when he feels the weight and the heaviness of having done something that he knows is wrong. All day long, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer, Psalm 32. And then I finally confessed my sin to you. I didn't hide it any longer. I got it out into the open. And isn't that a scary moment when you've been hiding something maybe for a long time and you're so sick and tired of doing that? Or maybe you're so jaded you don't care any longer. But if you're at that point where you're tired of it and you need to let that weight out and you've said to somebody, here's what's really true. And that moment of like, what are they going to say? What are they going to say in response to that? But you know what it's like to, to, to have it out there. I'm not hiding any longer. What a sense of freedom that comes from that. And yes, there's, of course, consequences that come along with it. But, and you know, if you're walking with, with God, if you're in relationship to him, he does work through, through these kind of internal workings, I would argue. Some of the church fathers have called this consolation and desolation. Pay attention to that. You know what that's like, don't you? You're just kind of going along and something's not right internally. Like something's bothering you. That's, I would argue, especially if you have God's Spirit in you, which we know happens when we say yes to Christ. I'm saying no to myself and yes to Jesus. He says, I will give you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be guiding you and directing you, not just telling you what to say, but working internally in such a way that those moments of desolation when you feel like something's wrong, God is speaking to you. He's saying something. What's he saying? I, I, I don't know. You've got to explore that. It, you do, that's why we need community. That's why we go to prayer. That's why we look at God's word. Because as much as we say God is speaking through these things, you have to be able to discern, is it really God speaking or is it my own sin? Is it Satan? Is it the world? Thankfully, we have God's word that gives us clear, clear directions and we can discern that, I think, also in community. But I think it's worth paying attention to the internal workings of what's happening inside. You're out of sorts. Spend some time exploring why that's the case. Maybe you're believing something false. Maybe there's a sin that you need to confess. Perhaps. Confess your sins to each other. You'll be healed. Maybe there's a false God that you've been serving. You know something's wrong. Maybe you're just sad and depressed and you haven't told God that. I don't know. It's a grand adventure. I don't have the script for you. But I do know that God works in those kinds of ways. See, there's not just a God who's screaming about his existence through creation and declaring how good his word is, but he's intimately involved in your life, working even in those emotions. And we heard it. We sang about it. You know, the, the sparrows. and he, he pays attention to every single hair on your head. Every single hair on your head. You know, not a hair falls without him knowing it. That's how intimately involved this God is. We have a conscience, all of us, but we need the Holy Spirit who comes in and begins interacting with us. And we need God's word as well. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 says this. The word of God is living and active. 
sharper than any double-edged sword. And here we see all these things kind of coming together. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation. Isn't this great? Here's God declaring himself through creation. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Declaring himself in his word. The word of God is living and active. And speaking directly to your heart. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That's Psalm 19. Right there. It's going even to that level. Everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If there's a God who's created everything, certainly he knows. Everything, not just on the outside like we humans see, but on the inside. When Jesus comes, he says, I'm not just going to deal with the outside stuff. I want to get to the heart. I want to get to the inside. Because you can make a nice little bowl on the outside and it's dirty on the inside. I'm going to come and do business with that. I'm going to clean it up. This God who created all things, you can walk with him. And maybe you're not quite there yet. Maybe you're like, eh, don't know if there's God, don't, don't know how he created things, not sure that this word is true, not even sure that anything you're saying up there is true whatsoever. I'm glad you're here. It's great. Thanks, thanks for coming around. C.S. Lewis is an author. You may be familiar with him. He was in the same place. He was an atheist. He said, there is no God. And when he came to a conclusion, in fact, there is, he started writing about some of this stuff. And here's what he said about this creator. We have two bits of evidence about the moral power. Somebody. He says, let's pretend there's somebody out there who's given us a sense of right and wrong. And his argument is, where did that come from? Well, he argues ultimately it had to come from a person who sets the standard for right or wrong. Let's call him God. We have two bits of evidence. One is the universe he's made. If we used that as our only clue, then I think we should have to conclude that he was a great artist. For the universe is a very beautiful place. But also that he is quite merciless and no friend to man. For the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place. I've only been talking about how grand it is. It's also really scary. I don't know how, how much you've experienced the power of the universe, so to speak, in a very negative way. The other bit of evidence is the moral law, which he's put into our minds. And from this second bit of evidence, we can conclude that, behind, that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct. My reason for getting my, to my real subject in this roundabout way is that Christianity simply does not make sense until you face the sort of facts I've been describing. Christianity tells people to repent and promises and forgiveness. It is after you've realized that there's a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you've broken the law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment centered that Christianity begins to talk. Is God speaking? Is the Christian message speaking? Well, you'll only hear it, he says, if you believe this. When you know you're sick, you'll listen to the doctor. It's just something I hope you'll, you'll consider that this story, even in Psalm 19, is an invitation to listen to the message that's being declared here. And maybe you're already there. You're like, yeah, I'm on board. But you know, I'm not that good of a listener. God is speaking, but I don't want to take time to listen to what he's saying or it gets confusing as well. I, I don't know where you are. And my, my, my encouragement would be this week just to consider the birds of the air, and the lilies of the field. In other words, spend, spend this week paying attention to how God is speaking. 
through his creation, through his word, and even internally in your heart. Where am I comforted? Where am I disquieted? Maybe just take creation because it gets a little bit overwhelming. I was trying to do this this week as I was preparing, just looking and considering what is this saying about the God that I serve, his eternal nature, his divine attributes. They're being shared in creation. Look through new lenses, and we even sang about this too. But when I say consider the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Don't worry about your life. So this week, as soon as you begin to worry, let's assume you do. Some of you probably never worry. You never have a care or concern at all. But if you do, if you find desolation in your spirit, like I'm worried about something, Jesus says, do this. Don't worry what you'll eat or drink about your body, what you'll wear. What do, what do you do? How do you do that? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Look at the birds and you should draw the conclusion I'm valuable. And certainly God knows what I'm facing. He knows the fears I have, the concerns that I have. That's from looking at creation. You know, it's not just a bird fl flitting away or whatever you might. God is caring for you. He's providing for you. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of anybody worry about what they're going to wear or what kind of thing they're going to wear? When, you, when that happens, consider the lilies of the field. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? What do you do instead? You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. I just want to suggest today based on Psalm 19 and this too part of seeking his kingdom is taking time to look even at the creation God has given and say what is he saying to me through these birds through these flowers this spring is bursting forward and don't let that moment pass you by because certainly he is speaking the only question is are we listening Father I pray this morning that you'd search us that you'd know our hearts that you'd test us, that you'd know our anxious thoughts, that you'd see if there's any offensive way in us, and that you'd lead us in the way everlasting. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last week I gave a real short message, and all the people in the children's ministry were like, we're not even close to being done. Today apparently a little longer, because they've been scampering out there for a bit of time. But if somebody wants to go, uh, let them know they're welcome to come on in. That would be excellent, and we'll... Close with the doxology in just a moment.